Well, as we continue on in our series on the book of Revelation, we come this morning to uh, the section in the, the book, chapter 20, that contains the New Testament teaching on the subject of the millennium, probably the, the, the least understood and most debated chapter in the whole of the book. Uh, some Christians find it so confusing that they, they ignore it altogether, while others uh, see it as a fascinating fuel for all sorts of flights of fancy and speculation. But my hope uh, this morning is that we can avoid both of those extremes. Uh, but before we get into it, however, let's take the time to, to read the passage through again this morning, a, a, another lengthy extended reading, but reading this morning both uh, chapters 19 and 20. So give attention to the hearing of God's word this morning. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. 
And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who is who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of God. We are now deep into the second half of the book. And the thing that uh, we've noticed again and again is how Revelation is organized and shaped around a series of seven visions. Uh, First of all, there were the seven uh, seals on a scroll that are opened and God gives John a glimpse of his purposes for history. 
And then the trumpets are sounded and we sense as we seem to be going over the same terrain that we are being given a more focused understanding of, of, of what it is that God is doing. And then as we move into the second half of the book of Revelation and come to the seven bowls of wrath to be poured out, we are led, as it were, to the very heart of the conflict that undergirds this whole book. And we might describe it, as you, if you like, as a conflict between the Holy Trinity and the dark or unholy trinity. That, that is, this book is full of the glory of the Father and the ministry of Christ the Son and the work of the Holy Spirit. But what we've increasingly begun to see emerge from chapter 12 on is that there is opposition to the Holy Trinity and it comes from a counterfeit parody of the real thing, if you like, this unholy trinity of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. And it's begun to emerge that what we are seeing here is simply the climax of the whole story of the Bible, where, where under the guidance of this unholy trinity, a city has been built in this world, a city that is anti-God, a city called Babylon. And it's set over against the city that God is building, the city of God, the city, the city of Jerusalem. And the whole story is leading to a final and climactic conflict in which at the end of the day, only the city of God is going to remain standing. And so as we approach the climax and end of the book of Revelation, we begin to see this very clearly structured in the tapestry of God's purposes that history is really a tale of two cities. And we, are, and we see the building of Babylon and Jerusalem as two great spiritual cities at war over planet Earth. One of them declared for Satan and his Antichrist, and the other declared for God and his Christ. And Babylon is smart and sexy, alluring and attractive, and her packaging sells products and movies and politics and ideas better and more successfully than the packaging of Jerusalem. But here's the thing. She is doomed to destruction. In fact, after chapter 18, the name of Babylon is whispered no more. There's only one city in the age to come, Jerusalem, the city of God. So this tale of two cities ends only one way. And now at this juncture, in the last couple of chapters, we have seen that Babylon is falling. And it's important, I think, for us to understand that the logic here does not follow a chronology it follows a theology. In other words, what is in view here is not something that we are to measure, as it were, in some, uh, some point in uh, future history that the city of Babylon will fall and then the beast and the, the false prophet will fall and then the dragon will fall. Indeed, when you think about it, it needs to be the very reverse of that, that God first has to deal with the root of evil in the dragon, then deal with the fruit uh, of that evil and the false prophet that is undergirded by the beast. And it's only when those dark and sinister forces are broken that the city of Babylon eventually is going to fall. And so there's an order here, but it's not the order of normal chronology. It's the order in which we see God dealing with the fruit of the work of the unholy trinity, and he will finally and climactically deal with his unholy holy trinity in the person of the lord jesus and essentially it seems to me we are to see the assault and the eventual 
overthrow that comes to the city of Babylon and the false prophet and the beast and the dragon as one great reality of God's victory. And it is in order to help us understand how deep and glorious God's victory is that it's described for us here in images that we can take in and begin to understand and ultimately can rejoice in. And so in Revelation 19, what we essentially have here is a series of visions, or if you like, a number of different camera angles that John sees as he is given the privilege of seeing God's ultimate climactic victory and triumph over evil. And so in chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, he's given this wonderful picture of the ultimate triumph of the Lord Jesus. Heaven has erupted at the beginning of chapter 19, verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. And all of this because, as we learned last week in chapter 18, Babylon has fallen. And, and here, and, and there is now this great invitation And we see to the marriage supper of the Lamb at the beginning of verse 7 and on through the end of verse uh, verse 10. But with those hallelujahs still ringing in his ears, John sees heaven opened again. And there is an explanation for the destruction of Babylon and the invitation to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. What has caused the destruction of Babylon? It is that the Lord Jesus, as the great white knight of heaven if you like, has come and rescued his damsel in in distress. And he comes, in verse 11, seated on a white horse. His name is faithful and true. And on him is written the name, the word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh, verse 16, he has the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's clearly that the Lord Jesus coming as the divine champion to rescue his people and to overcome the powers of darkness. And he rides out in order to do battle against the forces that have been arrayed against his people, those for whom he died, the church. And it's very interesting just to pause there and to notice that this is where this section ends, with the destruction of the kings and captains and mighty men and the horses and their riders. Who are these? Well, these are the very people that we have seen again and again and again and again in the book of Revelation as it's been working up to its grand climax. These are the forces that have been arrayed against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they've been arrayed in battle against him. And when we come to this section where the battle comes to its final consummation, if we had time, which we don't have this morning, but time to go back to the beginning of the book of Revelation, we would notice that the opening of the seals brought us to this battle. That that the, uh, the sounding of the trumpets brought us to this battle. That the pouring out of the bowls of wrath brought us to this battle. But now we are being brought to this battle to see how it is that this battle is going to be won by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he deal with his enemies? By the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. The apostle Paul puts it in the same way in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he seems to be speaking of the great grand climax of history, he says the Lord Jesus will simply blow his enemies away. He will destroy his enemies with the breath of his mouth. 
And you see what's happening here. This is the same who, Lord Jesus, who, who by the breath of his mouth called all things into being. Nothing was made without him making it, says John at the beginning of his, of his gospel. And now he's speaking about the same Lord Jesus Christ who by the word brought creation into being. And he is now exercising that same voice in judgment, bringing judgment upon his enemies. And in verse 17, there is this picture that's meant to touch us, as it were, at the most, most basic instinct of our lives and say, I want no part in this. For those who have arrayed themselves against God are left, as it were, in the field of battle for the birds of the air to come and feast upon their remains. It's almost as though we've got a hint here, not... You know, just after the invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that either you come to the marriage supper of the Lamb or you become the supper of the birds of the air. It's, it's, it's a grotesque contrast between unadulterated glory and privilege and joy everlasting and what in, the, in various ways the Bible calls the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, you know, many people are surprised by this scene because they have been fed a sanitized version of Jesus that is only half true. You know, they have been told that he is the Prince of Peace. But not that he establishes peace by destroying those who threaten it. They've heard about the parable-telling, donkey-riding, meek man of Galilee, but not about the sword-wielding captain of the armies of heaven who rides out on a white horse to destroy Satan's work and renew the universe. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ as he really is. Yes, Jesus the Messiah was born at the start of A.D. history to perform God's work of salvation and to call the world to submit to him. But he will also appear at the end of A.D. history to close his offer of salvation and to judge those who refuse it. The one who came and told the crowds in Jerusalem, I did not come to judge the world, but to save it, will end A.D. history by riding out to judge those who refuse his offer of salvation. The one who told Pontius Pilate that my, my, my kingdom is not of this world will one day appear with a troop of angels to establish the fullness of his kingdom on earth. And on that day, he has fulfilled all God's promises about the Messiah who saves. And he will arrive to fulfill all God's promises about the Messiah who judges. And we can see both of these promises in these two dinner invitations which Jesus, which Jesus issues in, in, in Genesis, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in, in, in chapter 19. The wedding supper is a call to sit and eat. Because the blood of the Lamb has turned us into a pure bride. But the great supper is called to come and be eaten. Because we rejected the blood of the Lamb, we will be turned into the food for vultures. In other words, whoever refuses the wedding supper will be summoned to the great supper. 
Whoever refuses Jesus the Savior will meet Jesus the judge. Now you would expect, I think, you would expect that when it comes time for the Lord Jesus to deal with the beast and the false prophets, that we would have an entire chapter to, devoted to him doing that. You know, every, every last detail of his power dealing, you know, death blow after death blow after death blow because they seem to be so enormously powerful and magnificent. And yet, do you see how they are simply dispensed with in a single verse of Scripture? The beast was captured, verse 20, and with it the false prophet, and they were thrown alive into the lake that, of fire that burns with sulfur, and they're gone. You see, these are the powers that are behind those who seek to dominate the people of God and intimidate the people of God and seem to be so incredibly vast and overwhelmingly powerful. But the truth of the matter is Jesus deals with them in a single verse and he just blows them away. And again, of course, this is picture language. And one of the things we always need to keep remind, being reminded of when we're considering the picture language of the book of Revelation is that the reality is even more real than the picture language. And so this is a dramatic picture of the triumph of the Lord Jesus. If you like it, it, this is the picture book version of what John says in 1 John 3 verse 8, that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so John says, I saw heaven open and I saw the Son of God defeating and destroying the power of the beast and the false prophet. So we th see through John's vision that the Lord Jesus brings about the end of Babylon we see that Jesus brings to an end the influence of the beast and the false prophet. And so as we've been following John along, we know what's coming next, right? The next thing that John will see is how the Lord Jesus deals, as it were, with the very root of the matter. And we find this in, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, in the binding of Satan. An angel appears, verse 2, and seizes the dragon and binds him for a thousand years and throws him into the pit. Now, what does this refer to, this binding of Satan? Well, you'll notice a couple of things that I think help us to understand what's in view here. First of all, this takes place, the binding of Satan, it takes place for a specific period. Notice he bound him, end of verse 2, for a thousand years. And then at the end of verse 3, until the thousand years were ended. So Jesus has come, and this is, this is pictured in the work of, of, of this angel, to bind Satan for this extended period of a thousand years. And, and as we often seen through, you know, before, these large numbers in the book of Revelation are just simply a, a symbolic of expansive periods of time. But why has Jesus bound Satan for a thousand years? Well, fortunately, we're not left to speculate that he has bound Satan through this period in order that he may no longer deceive the nations. And it seems to me that this expression is of great significance, that the dragon Satan may no longer deceive the nations. Now, the Language of deception, of course, comes from the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, that was when he began to reign and become the God of this age. And he, and he did it by deception. 
And if you think about what lies outside that narrow band of human history that unfolds for us in the pages of the Old Testament scriptures among that very select group of people who have the promises of God that he will send a deliverer, the truth of the matter is that until the coming, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the nations were broadly and largely and permanently deceived. They sat and lived in darkness. They knew nothing about the hope of the gospel. But when the Lord Jesus Christ overcame Satan on the cross, which Paul emphasizes in Colossians 2 and Hebrews emphasizes in Hebrews 2 and John emphasizes in John 12 and John 16, it was supremely on the cross that Jesus dealt with Satan. And what was the immediate result? It was, if you like, Matthew 28. 18 to 28, that the Lord Jesus is now able to say, where Satan has had all authority on earth, I now cast Satan out. Now is the time for the prince of this world to be judged, and I cast him out, and now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go with the gospel and undeceive the nations. Just as Paul says to the Athenians, the past times of ignorance uh, when people have been deceived, God, God may have overlooked, but now he has sent his son to undeceive the nations. So you see, rather than seeing the thousand years as some golden age in the future, we should be encouraged that they describe our here and now. Because that means that even though Satan is still able to blind the minds of unbelievers, Jesus has nevertheless bound him so that the church can plunder his possessions throughout the through the gospel. Right? Ever since Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus has been bound and has lost his grip on the pagan Gentile nations of the earth. And the, and the church has spread to almost every race, tribe, and language. But there are still more nations to prize from Satan's chained hands. That's why the Great Commission still, it still exists. It's still the call under which we live. It's why missions should be important to us and continue to be important. Because there's still more to, to be prized from Satan's uh, chained hands. And so we are living, in a sense, in this thousand-year period, this great stretch of history where, in the power of the gospel, the nations have been and are being undeceived. I mean, it's a glorious time to, to live in. How pessimistic we are and, 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 quite frankly, disobedient we are to the Great Commission when Jesus said, go out into all the world and bring the gospel to everyone. And alas, in the Western world, we're doing it less and less and less and less. But listen, it's the time of undeception. And it's a time for, this time is not going to last forever. It's a time that will come to an end. And yet, you notice before it comes to an end, and you know, we've seen this before, and we've made, because we've made our way through this book, where what we read... Read doesn't necessarily follow a chronological order, but is, is simply a shifting between different camera, camera angles. So we're able to see the, the same scene from another perspective. And so the binding of Satan in chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, is followed by a scene that raises John's eyes heavenward when he's given a vision of the reigning saints. 
And this is very interesting because he tells us in verse 4 that he's speaking here about the same period of time. Verse 4, those he saw came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So there's this extended period of time when the nations may be undeceived by the gospel, but simultaneous with that, he's allowed to gaze into a place where something else is happening during those thousand years. And what is that place? Well, we're sort of given a clue here in the very uh, first thing he saw. Then I saw thrones. Now, the noun for throne or seat, thronos, is used many times in the book of Revelation. It's used three times uh, of the place where Satan reigns, but every other time it's used, the thrones are located in heaven. And so it's clear, if you've been tracking with some of the scenes we've seen already in the book of, of Revelation, the scene here is not a scene on earth, it's a scene in heaven. I saw thrones. The only place he sees thrones, apart from the throne of Satan, is in heaven. And seated on them are those to whom authority to judge was committed. And there he saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying during this season, when the church is summoned to undeceive the nations, and therefore finds itself in conflict with the world spiritually, and, 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 and then for a moment, as it were, he, he looks up to heaven and he sees those who in their conflict with the unholy trinity and with the powers of the world, as they've brought witness to Babylon and undeceived the nations in various parts of the world throughout this long period of a thousand years, we, 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 we see that there are some of those who have been beheaded, who have been martyred, for the sake of Jesus Christ. What of them? Well, look at what he says. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You see, he's seeing the battle down here in order to undeceive the nations. But at the same time, as we're called to fight this battle, we are given a vision of those who are in glory experiencing the undiluted joy of seeing the face of their Lord. And it's almost as though God is saying, never lose sight of those two pictures. Never, never see one without seeing the other. Never long for heaven without being prepared for the battle on earth. And never engage in the battle on earth without realizing that there is a blessedness and security and joy even for those who have given their life unto death for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ because they share in the first resurrection. And what is the first resurrection. Or let me put it a different way. Whose was the first resurrection? There's only been one resurrection. There's been a couple who seem to have sailed straight into glory. And there are a few who seem to have been resuscitated from the dead. But there is only one who has been raised from the dead. Of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because they share in the resurrection of Jesus... They are living and reigning with Christ, and they have no fear of the second death. But says John, there are others who have not come to life. That is to say, I think in this context, who have, who have not any share in the first resurrection, who only share in the general re resurrection, which will be the general, which is a general resurrection for them unto judgment and unto death. And the more 
you know those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel, the more important this is for you. If you've never suffered for the Lord Jesus and know nobody who has suffered for the Lord Jesus, then this is, this is a bunch of, of nonsense. This is no big deal. This is just pie in the sky when you die. But if you know what it is to suffer for the sake of Christ, this is meat and drink and glory. These two things belong together, that when we suffer with our Lord Jesus below, we have this great assurance that we will reign as kings and worshiping priests with him above. And then you notice as this begins to unfold, when the thousand years are ended, verse 7, we're taken now to the final stage of this conflict. We've, we've got the coming of Jesus and his wonderful reign. We've got the binding of Satan. We've got the reigning of the saints in glory. And then in verses 7 through 10, we've got this picture at last of the final battle. Satan is released from his prison, and it's fascinating that there's no indication in Scripture as to why God governs history in this way. But Satan will be released from his prison and come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. And this is the battle that we've seen throughout the whole book of Revelation. These troops have been mustering for battle, mustering for battle. And, and, and we've, only, you know, we've only had a few insights of what this battle is going to, to involve. It says that their numbers are like the sand of the sea. They march up over the broad plain of the earth. They surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And we're done for, surely we're done for. The church is done for against such odds. But fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And in the mighty act of his coming, the Lord Jesus blows them away by the fire of judgment that proceeds from his mouth. And then you notice a very interesting thing. The devil has been rampant throughout this book. The devil has deceived endless multitudes of people. His power is extraordinary. His experience goes down through the millennia. There is not a single human being apart from the Lord Jesus Christ that hasn't at some point or other been tripped up and deceived by him. And again, surely we will need another book to detail how Jesus will finally destroy his power. And he's moved aside in a verse. Jesus picks him up and throws him in the language of Revelation into the lake of fire and sulfur with the beast and the false prophet to be tormented day and night forever and ever. In a moment, in an instant. You know, we recently uh, watched the final, um, uh, the final movement in the Hobbit series, the extended edition of the Battle of the Five Armies. It's like two hours and 45 minutes long. And all of the armies come onto the battlefield and they're ready to start the battle 45 minutes in. And you're going, we've got two hours of battle, this epic battle to see who will win. That's not like that. There's no epic battle here. He throws them down with the word of his power, and the power of his word. And then. We're led, chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, to this great white throne of judgment and to the opening of the books and to the final division 
in humanity. And I want to say this as we draw to a close. This is the, the great issue of the day. The great issue of the day is not who won a disputed election or what the latest Supreme Court ruling says or what's going on with Kanye West or LeBron James or what Harry Styles is wearing. The great issue of the day is that every single man, woman, boy and girl will shortly stand before the judgment seat of God and be sent either to heaven or to hell. And the truth of the matter is we don't know how long the period of undeception will last or how long it will be before those we know who are deceived will have before they too stand before the great white throne. The real issue of today is not whether the 49ers will beat the Rams. The real issue is whether Jesus Christ will reign over his people and send us out into our city and into our world, to the ends of the world, to, the, to, to suffering places, because we are absolutely secure in the knowledge that our Lord Jesus Christ has won the victory. Friends, this is a sobering truth and a sobering message. But this is the real Jesus, the glorious Jesus who appeared to John on Patmos. And we preach a pretend Jesus at our and others' peril. And so we need to pray and we need to labor and we need to be bound together and we need to go out with the only thing that can undeceive the nations, the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word, uh, for its power, for the sheer power of these images that are set before us in the pages of your word. And as we fast move to the end of this book of Revelation, we feel sometimes we would be glad to stay in these pictures forever, but, but we do pray that you would help us to close the picture book and to move out into the world and to be your faithful followers and servants until our life end. And we ask this for Jesus' glory and for our good. Amen. Amen.